0: Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink
1: pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this.
0: Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill?
2: Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2021. Paul, use the voice.
0: Listen to the podcast.
1: The movie, Dune. everyone, and welcome to
0: Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am a lover of film, joined, as always, by my co-host, Amy Nicholson, who is a critic of film, a uh, an amazing critic of film. She often writes for the New York Times. And uh, you actually interviewed the star and director of the film that we're talking about today, Dune. You interviewed Chalamet and Denis Villeneuve. Uh, what was that like?
1: <laughs> they are gigantic puppies. They're gigantic puppies together. One thing that I just didn't put in because how do you even write about it is like as we were talking, somebody walked by and they were carrying two slices of chocolate cake, really tall, thick, frosted slices of chocolate cake. They're in the middle of talking about something really deep and they both just could not function and shut up and their mouths were open and they tracked this cake across the room with their eyes and it took them like 30 seconds to snap out of it. They just sort of mumbled chocolate under their breath. And then kind of really, really cartoon dog behavior.
0: Well, I think that's interesting that they are so into chocolate cake, because this movie is, in many ways, like the chocolate cake of, of cinema. It is... Wow,
1: how are you going to land this analogy already? Oh, it's,
0: <laughs> it's rich. It's rich. Uh, it's full of flavor. But it also is something that appeals to everyone. I mean, this is a big movie that was not only just a hit here everywhere and I think because it's something that everybody can recognize. This is a movie about, you know, oppression. This is a movie about heroes. This is a movie that really is the backbone of all sci-fi. And coming out in 2021, that's hard to do because so many films have copied it. And we'll talk about that in this episode. We'll talk about how Star Wars and uh the films that we've seen, like
1: Alien and even Beetlejuice, share things from Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about really appreciating Denny Villeneuve's craft in taking this dense sci-fi story and figuring out how to adapt it. I mean, people have made the mistake, sorry, David Lynch, we love you. Even David Lynch is not happy with his version of this film, of trying to just capture the book and put it on screen using voiceover, using everything. Denny is like, I'm gonna make stuff quiet. And you know what? I'm just even gonna have people use sign language. We're gonna get things done as visually as possible and I'm gonna make it work.
0: Well, get into how this movie is a visually- stunning film, but also going deeper into what you're saying. It's not just about quiet. It's also about the sounds. And we'll talk about uh, Hans Zimmer and how he approached this. Uh, you know, Denny Villeneuve turned down directing the new James Bond. Hans Zimmer turned down working on Tenet to work on this film. This is a labor of love. And I think you can see it all across the screen. And maybe we didn't get it right the first time because this is a movie that wasn't even nominated for best director.
1: But you know what we did get, Paul? We got our Dune 2 popcorn buckets with the creepy, creepy oh, sandworm my on top gosh. of it. The bucket made now famous in the Saturday Night Live skit that I just have to play right now. By the way, I assume you watched that skit, little throwback to our American Beauty episode. This the bucket is hailed down upon in a in a shower of red rose petals. Thank you, American Beauty. There Thank it is. You, SNL. Thank you, Dune popcorn bucket. It is in my house right now, and it fits on top of the Taylor Swift popcorn bucket, so you can have a Dune Taylor Swift popcorn bucket. Oh my gosh!
0: Uh, I will tell you this much: <laughs> I even wrote a little thing on my Substack about it last week. Uh, there's an apology from the uh, AMC CEO about not realizing it looked like a giant butthole. Here's the thing, Amy. The movie is two hours and 48 minutes. We're going to try to talk about everything we can and less than 90. Can it be done? Well, let's see if we can find power in this desert and unspool it. The year is 2021 and one movie is dominating the Oscars like a giant sandworm swallowing up the industry's biggest spice-making machine, a.k.a. the Oscars. It is Dune, which enters the evening with 10 nominations the second most of the night after Jane Campion's Power of the Dog. It ends up gobbling six, but not, however, the biggest prizes of the night, Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. And for Best Director,
1: Denis Villeneuve isn't even nominated. It's easier to say that the Oscars got it wrong when we're looking back 51 years to this thing, or even 25 years to American Beauty. What about two Oscars ago? Who there just had to do a blink and be like, oh yeah, power of the dog. Do we wish Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli had gotten on stage to present best picture and said a different four-letter word? Are you excited to announce best picture? And the Oscar goes to... Okay, CODA. (laughs) Dune over CODA? Absolutely no contest. That feels like an easier call today. But I'll be honest, I'm not so sure I was ready to say that then. I mean, maybe I've got to face my own reluctance to say a genre space epic is the best movie of our most prestigious award ceremony. Maybe it's because Dune Part 1 was, by design, only half of a story, but now that I have seen Dune Part 2, it is easier to see the brilliance of the plot threads that Denny and his co-writers sewed into this first one, and honestly, just the brilliance of what he saved for the second installment.
0: Oh, you're getting me so excited for Dune Part 2. But let's focus on Dune Part 1. All right, Dune Part 1 is the story of a young man named Paul Atreides, that's Timothy Chalamet, who leaves his wet and rainy home planet to settle on a desert planet called Arrakis because his father, a duke played by Oscar Isaac, has accepted a new job where he must take over from the Baron Harkonnen as the overseer of spice farming. Now, spice is a magical space dust that gets people high and makes ships kind of travel interstellarly. It's found only on Arrakis, and much to the anger of Arrakis's local population, the Fremen, who see foreign farmers as colonizers, and to the irritation of the farmers themselves, who keep on getting attacked by the insurgent Fremen soldiers in super cool, dusty, slow-mo fights. Meanwhile... Paul's mother, Lady Jessica, that's Rebecca Ferguson, belongs to a spiritual cult called the Ben Gesserit, who have spent generations trying to breed a galactic leader who can bend time and space. It's not supposed to be Paul, but he's having weird dreams about a Fremen girl named Chani, that is, Zendaya, and prophetic visions of leading a religious army that might one day dominate the galaxy. Now... Maybe we're rooting for him to become that leader after all. And maybe if he does, that's a very bad thing.
1: Save it for the second film, Paul. I mean,
0: we didn't even mention uh the giant sandworms. I mean, the, the, this is a dense movie. I mean, for <laughs> three hours. Uh, we get a lot out in three hours and we're not even halfway there. <laughs>
1: Dune Part 1 was released on October 22nd, 2021, without an assurance that Dune Part 2 was even going to be greenlit. I mean, I just think that's such a flex to put Part 1 in the title anyway. Uh, The movie did well at the box office, even factoring in for the pandemic that was happening at the time and all, uh, and also factoring in for HBO Max's decision to stream Dune on its app on opening weekend, competing with itself in theaters. Nevertheless, Dune made $434 million around the globe, and of course, got its Oscars and its follow-up. So what was in the zeitgeist that October of 2021? A song by a pop artist who is himself willing to take on God and the devil. A pop artist who here sings about people who are not really rooting for him as he makes his way up to the top, and who here in this video leads an army of his own troops dancing, but naked in the shower. It is little Nas X and Industry Baby. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh, that song plays all the time in my house. It's my son's favorite pump-up song before he plays basketball. Uh, Oh, it's a good one. It's a great, it's a banger. Uh, That's
1: a good one. I didn't realize how much that video was just like paying homage to Shawshank Redemption. Never really put it together. Little Nas X was a, a hardcore Shawshank.
0: thing. fan. Hey, look, we talked about it. It's America's favorite film. Uh, <laughs> you know, we are talking about an interesting year, too. And just to go back to 2021, it is the year where we have the uh, insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, right? We have uh, President Biden withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. Juneteenth becomes a federal holiday. Uh, COVID-19 vaccines become available, right? And um, it's this moment where we start this battle of movies that are brand new coming out on streaming. This is like one of these bigger films. You know, I think we saw it a little bit earlier with wonder woman 2 There'd been signs of it, but this was a giant, like, Oh shit. Like this is in the theater and I'm watching it at home the same weekend. I I just, I want to just put some spotlight on that in a way, because this is a giant film, and I wonder if it helped or hurt that it was dual-released.
1: Oh, I mean, I feel like it definitely hurt a little bit, actually, but then would everybody have seen it? Like, I want to be empathetic to the feeling of, like, I don't want to go to a movie theater in 2021. It's still pretty scary going to a movie theater in 2021. But then I also cannot help but, like, empathize with Denis Villeneuve himself, who was just furious about this you know this is so much a movie that was made to be seen big 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 and i imagine being this guy working on this film hearing it's going to be like put on screen small i mean did you ever read the public letter that he wrote that was published in variety where he was just so angry and he was not going to hide it
0: i remember it but refresh my memory a little bit
1: oh i will i'll read some of the angriest sentences this is just excerpts with this decision AT&T, referring to the people who own all this whole conglomerate all the way up, has hijacked one of the most respectable and important studios in film history. There's absolutely no love for cinema, nor for the audiences here. It is all about the survival of a telecom mammoth, one that is currently bearing an astronomical debt of more than $150 billion. Therefore, even though Dune is about cinema and audiences, AT&T is about its own survival on Wall Street. With HBO Max's launch a failure this far, AT&T had decided to sacrifice Warner Brothers' entire 2021 slate in a desperate attempt to grab the audience's attention. Warner Brothers' sudden reversal from being a legacy home from filmmakers to the new era of complete disregard draws a clear line for me. Filmmaking is a collaboration, reliant on the mutual trust of teamwork, and Warner Brothers has declared they are no longer on the same team. I, I mean, mean, woof. These are the people making your film. And you're like, you guys are killing everything. And you know what? He was very much right about Warner Brothers now. And look, things haven't changed
0: because we're living through this right now. I mean, Doug Lyman is fighting the same public battle uh, with his film Roadhouse, which, you know, stars Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a remake. He was promised that this film would be released in theaters. It, it tested higher than any of Doug Lyman's previous films. And Amazon's like we have a smash hit on our hands, and they're putting it direct to streaming. And he is oh mad. My God. He's boycotting South by Southwest, and we're seeing these directors who are making big screen event movies feeling betrayed. I mean, Christopher Nolan talked about this as well. Like,
1: yeah, Ryan Johnson, I think, really fought to make Netflix put knives out too in theaters to, yeah. to break their model. And I think he won. And I think since then, Netflix has been a little better about this, even as the studios themselves are backsliding.
0: Well, and I also think there are these weird, like middle ground releases where you're releasing it in a couple of theaters, right? Cause I believe that like glass onion was only released in a, like a, like I'm going to say about like a thousand theaters. Right. And then because it did well, I think it actually expanded. Um, you know, people want to see things in the, in the theater. I am one of those people, but I'm also somebody who has a kid, uh, two kids, as a matter of fact, and to go see a three hour film, uh, which is probably going to be about three and a half hours is a little bit tricky for me. So I also understand why it's great to have a movie like this at home. I enjoyed this movie at home and I fucking loved it. And I honestly think that a movie like this in a genre like this, that people kind of poo-poo, which is sci-fi, but even worse, smart sci-fi. I like smart sci-fi, but that can kind of put people off. And when you give something to people for free, or they have HBO and they can watch it immediately, they'll get sucked in. And I do think it converts more. Like, I do believe that comedies are great streaming as well, because there's less of a reluctance. Well, is it going to be good? Will I want to spend my money for this? Like, And I I think there are benefits and deficits to it. I think that eliminating the theater is terrible, obviously. But I also think in a film like this, it opened up an audience that I think, while maybe interested, maybe would be a little bit more hesitant to go see smart sci-fi. It's exactly what people want to see on the big screen, but smarter and better. And sometimes that that doesn't always work. But I will say when I rewatched it, uh, I couldn't go see it in the theater, but I did watch it on my Apple uh, Vision Pro, and I got to sit in the middle of the orchestra section of a beautiful theater, and it was awesome. I feel like I got to see the movie in a completely different way uh, than just on a television because it felt, it felt like I was in a theater watching this movie. It was, pretty, it was pretty dope.
1: You know, I think it would actually be a good faith effort if they would re-release Dune 1 in theaters to go with Dune 2. Because mm. honestly-
0: Like an all-day event?
1: Well, yeah. I feel like you have to have just re-watched Dune 1 to get into Dune 2 because Dune 2 does not do any recap. Like, it is just structured like, and here comes the second part of the story. It's not like, let me re-explain to you where we were. There is no catch-up. So, like, if you don't really remember Dune 1, Dune 2 will be like, wait, what on earth is actually happening?
0: I'm so excited that I rewatched it because I forgot so much, but I did remember in watching Dune 1- I was a little bummed because it felt like the movie was just beginning. Little did I know that the three hours I just watched, or two hours and 48 minutes, was the first act of a movie. I didn't think it was going to be structured that way. I didn't know where they were drawing the line. I didn't read the book. I didn't know what was happening. And so when it ends, the way it ends, it felt a little bit anticlimactic. It didn't feel like a full film. But then rewatching it. I think it it,
1: felt like a dare. Like, it felt like a taunt. Like, you don't want me to end the story here. Right. Like, he's been really kind of clear in interviews that he does not consider part two to be a sequel. He's like, this is not a sequel. I'm just picking up the second half of the story. You know, we're not like, we didn't end that film. We like, we kind of like left it. I don't know. I keep picturing like a magnet that's waiting for the other half of the magnet to come and like close it up and make it complete.
0: I love what you're saying about it being a dare because most films that we watch, uh, whether it be Lord of the Rings or the Harry Potter films that really are telling a giant story are built with some sort of climactic ending. You know, something that really feels like, okay, well, this chapter is done and we're moving forward. This movie does not feel like this. I mean, this movie feels like it really is a glorified first act. Like we we watch something, it's interesting. The story continues, but it doesn't feel like, oh, something has been achieved. And I love that about this movie, but I also think I love it more knowing I'm a week away from watching it, its continuation, right? Because when this comes out, we're talking about like uh, essentially a four-year break before we're going to see the next part of that. That's very long.
1: Well, yeah, and I think it really is only when I was stacking these two films together that I was able to have more of a sense of how Denny structured the two films really masterfully you know, I'll just use like an example to kind of pop out, right? Like the books. And I read the books back in college. Like my dad made a really uh, loving but misguided decision that like when I went and studied abroad in Sweden, he was going to send me with like three Dune books. And I will tell you that there is no worse place to try to imagine that you're living in like a desert planet with no water than Sweden when it's black outside all the time and snowing. Like I just could not do it mentally. I read them all, but I had no idea what happened. And they're pretty, I find them a little confusing, you know, because uh, there's just so much history, so much lore, like all of these different, you know, clans on different planets. And it's almost like a Russian novel where people have like more than one name or there's more than one name for so many different things. You know, like you, one group calls like saviors gayib and the, another group calls the same kind of figure like Kuisach or something. And it's just like having to hold all of these things in your head is really Complicated. Yeah,
0: people call this like the space Game of Thrones. Like it's this dense world that you have to just kind of sink or swim in figuring out who's who and what's what because it's not really holding your hand.
1: No, it doesn't hold your hand at all. And neither do these two movies. And like one of the things that I didn't appreciate what a big shift it was, you know, when I saw the first one on its own was that, you know, the books themselves are sort of narrated by this character of the emperor's daughter. You know, the princess is going to be played by Florence Pugh in the sequels. Like she really gets about the first line in the in the books. You know, it's sort of like she almost frames the different stories or chapters. Like she's a historian, kind of telling you what happened through her point of view, right? And, you know, when David Lynch adapted Dune, he was really true to that. You know, his Dune in 1984 starts with the Empress giving narration, doing what she does in the book, kind of telling you everything about who everyone is, what they're up to, what's going on. I forgot
2: to tell you, the Spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe, a desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom.
1: The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. Because in a lot of ways, I mean, that's kind of the only way to get through all of the depth of Dune is to have somebody just being like, let me tell you what is happening. Let me just explain. And I think Dune in Lynch's hands or like Lynch would probably say like with the studio's hands doing it out of his control is just like so full of people trying to catch you up to speed and just like explaining everything. Contrast that with the fact that in this Dune, Denis Villeneuve doesn't have the Empress at all. She's just not there. She's not narrating it. She's not picked up. She's not referred to. We don't cut over to go see her at any time. And, you know, she shows up right at the beginning of 2. He holds her for that. He, like, takes all of these major characters from Dune, and he's just, like, held them for the sequel because he's like, you know what? I understand that this is way too dense, and I can structure this powerfully if I do it this way. Here's where these people matter. And instead, he does a really smart thing with this one where he gives that voice of background information To Zendaya, to Chani, to the character of the woman living on this Fremen planet. But one day, by imperial decree, they were gone. Why did the Emperor choose this path? And who will our next oppressors be? And in that little shift... He changes this from a story about like, here's this whole planet and all of this lore and all of these galaxies. And let me tell you about everything. And he's like, this is a story that's pretty simple, actually. Here is a planet where people are being oppressed. And I want you to care about the people who are being oppressed. And she's going to get this line right now. And we're going to see this through her point of view. He just shifts perspective immediately from a woman who's not even on this planet yet to the person who is and really cares. And I think that's the kind of streamlining he does with the script that is so smart.
0: Well, it's so interesting that we we both were feeling like we needed to see one before watching two, because to your point, Denny believes that part two stands on its own two feet. He's like, I, I wrote this movie. I made sure that part two would be an autonomous film. Um, yes, it's directly connected to the first one, but you can enjoy part two without having seen part one. Now, I don't know if the studio is making him say that, but... I was surprised that, you know, a movie like this, he would even approach it like that. Because I think a lot of filmmakers don't do that. I think a lot of filmmakers sometimes rely on you bringing everything in. I think this is the part of the Marvel world that has caused a lot of agita with people, which is like, oh, well, if you didn't see the miniseries and you didn't know this character, then you didn't know this, like... We, we get so caught up in these universes that we forget that the the basic level that we're connecting with on films is just good storytelling, like what you're talking about. Like, making this story personal with Shawnee and Paul Atreides, it just makes the the world a lot simpler. Like, I, I can catch up with the rest, but I basically just need to understand that they're being betrayed, he's feeling like he's special, and he might be the the, the person to unite... This world that is uninhabitable and mean and nasty and the outside world, which is trying to keep this oppression going and keep these uh, Fremen from living any bit of a a good life.
1: Yeah, because when you put it in that way, in that kind of historical context of like, here's the Fremen trying to survive on this planet and here are people taking their resources, I think this feels almost less like a sci-fi film and more just like a realistic film about the world that we're living in now. You know, uh, there's a quote from um there's a quote from Frank Herbert that I really like where he says, "My Arab friends wonder why this book is called science fiction."
2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy
1: gem of a detour.
0: What I really was impressed by in this rewatch was the world building, like, and one of the reasons why this movie goes down so smoothly is because it's so stunning to look at, you know, very rarely do I watch a movie where I'm like, how the fuck did they do this? I mean, it really is bizarre that, you know, in a, in a world that we live in, that's so full of special effects and, and shitty looking sets and CGI that this world looks so incredibly realized i mean i i just kept on staring at it going like this is a truly masterful bit of design i mean we are in this completely real world it reminded me actually in many ways of like the way that james cameron builds his world or especially uh an avatar it's like oh i this feels lived in and real it doesn't feel like i'm seeing seams here I feel like I could watch this entire film with the sound off and enjoy it just as much. I mean, just watch it with Hans Zimmer's score, which is uh, really like, like a powerful score. I mean, the score is unbelievable, too.
1: I like it. And I like that he's not above using bagpipes with the boot strikes.
0: Oh, by the way, there's a, such a funny story about this, which is, you know, Hans Zimmer uh, recorded this during COVID lockdown. And uh, his team turned his sitting room into a studio, which was right next to his daughter's room. And like he's, he was like, I feel like my daughter is going to suffer from bagpipe PTSD because it's <laughs> yeah. five in the morning and I'm blasting away, and the whole house is shaking from bagpipe sounds.
1: <laughs> I mean, I love that because I feel like this movie figures out a way of capturing the tactility of future space? Do you know what I mean? They're not using some instrument that is like all bleeps and gizmos that we don't understand. They're like, a few things have managed to you know survive through the eons. Bagpipes happen to be one of them. They also created new musical instruments
0: specifically for this yeah. film soundtrack. I mean, that's new musical instruments? No,
1: I know. But like, I'm saying that it feels like the people of this world use tactile things but then they're captured with like new creations. Oh, oh I mean right? no,
0: I'm I'm not even arguing with you. I'm just saying like this is wild that they're like that they yes, you're right. Like things have stayed uh things have gone but like like that's how intense the score is that they have created completely new sounds. Like it really does feel like You know that joke in Star Trek is always my favorite, where a character will say, "Oh, it's like the great uh, playwright Shakespeare once wrote. It's like you telling me that in multiple planets (laughs) over the course of so many uh, centuries that you have you only still reference Shakespeare. Like how bad (laughs) has art been (laughs) that that is the only? We are now we've opened up to the world." And yet we only still have our handful of of references, you know? Uh, So I do love that Hans Zimmer, like, created new things, brought in other things.
1: Well, he said here he wanted... This is like a quote from him. He said, quote, I'm looking for a musical phrase with the efficiency of the word fuck. He wanted to come up with sounds in music that just sounded as fucking simple as saying fuck on the screen. Because that's what this movie was for him, I think. Yeah,
0: I mean, he chose words for the score's lyrics based on words that sing well opposed to their meaning, you know? He kind of said this thing that, like, the professor of linguistics is probably quietly horrified by what I did, but the point isn't understanding the words, it's that someone is telling you something important. And I think fuck is, like, that kind of uh, emphasis word, you know? It's like it has that that power to it.
1: Yeah, totally. But I think also there is this idea of watching this film and being able to see in it I don't know, a through line of civilization that comes back all the way to us. I mean, is what, this is set in the year 10,191 and you have a character named, uh, what's his name, Duncan Idaho. Idaho, Duncan you know? Idaho. And it's so dumb, but it also has this element of like, some things have kind of survived through the years. I mean, Duncan is itself like a Shakespearean name. I mean, my my boyfriend, he refers to this movie as like Macbeth on mushrooms, huh. which makes a ton of sense because like, because um, Frank Herbert did a lot of mushrooms uh, back in like the 50s and 60s. Uh, major mushroom head, you know, progressive ahead of his time, lived in San Francisco before people were microdosing. He was all about it. But Duncan Idaho, it's like, hello, I am Shakespeare, but also I have some connection back to Earth. At some level, these people maybe lived on Earth. And I was like, man, I want to figure out like what my Duncan Idaho name was. I Googled online. I was like, surely there must be a Duncan Idaho name generator. And I couldn't find one, you know, but if we have like your porn star name and blah, 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 blah. There's got to be like a Duncan Idaho name generator. Well, I, there is one.
0: Do you want your friend? Yes.
1: What I couldn't it.
0: What is it? Oh, it's a new. It's a Dune name generator. I just typed in Dune name generator. Oh, Uh,
1: specifically for
0: the Duncan of it all. Oh well, Duncan Idaho is not a name generator. That's like a name. Like you got. But I
1: want a uh, name like that. I want to. I want to be like Desdemona, Michigan.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, there's plenty of Dune names. Let me. Let me. I'll I'll put one in for you right now. All right. Let's. I mean,
1: Lady Jessica. Oh, that's so funny.
0: All right. Lady Jessica. All right. So what I just got from my name, Mm -hmm. John Oklahoma.
1: That's perfect. You just, you newly are in love with Oklahoma.
0: I mean, there it is. I was. I know. There you go. Well, so wait. Look,
1: we'll put mine in. What's mine?
0: All right. You are going to get. Let me see. I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to a different site to make sure that we. You know, we kind of. Uh, we get you the right <laughs> There's
1: way. more than one. Oh, there's. You got John plenty. Oklahoma immediately.
0: John Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, well, I can give you your house. No, I won't give you your house. I'll give you this. All right. Here you. Hold on one second. Let me put it in. What house do you want to be in? Do you want to be a? Uh, do you want to be a Fremen? House of Atreides. House of Corino. House of Harkonnen. Or Reverend Mothers. Then we'll generate from there.
1: Ooh, I want to be a Reverend Mother.
0: Okay, Reverend Mother. All right, so we're going to put your name in here. Let's see here. Okay, you will be Septimus Sadie Onto.
1: Ooh, Septimus Sadie Onto. Yeah, there you go. Septimus. Septimus, that sounds like a disease.
0: (laughs) All right, right, I'll generate another one for you. How about this one? Uh, Marcellus Seal Lem.
1: Marcellus Seal Lem. I'll take it. Now I just sound like uh, like I want to be in a Pulp Fiction movie.
0: I will generate my own uh, Fremen name, uh, and it will be Chot. <laughs> and now I'll do yours. And yours is <laughs> Chit. Chit and Chot. Okay, I'm going Welcome back to, to, to Desdemona, Michigan.
1: I think that's me. <laughs> I think I'm just going to be Desdemona, Michigan now.
0: No, but I I, I, <laughs> I think you're right. There is this thing about the Dune universe, which feels very familiar very much like this is the world after something major has happened. You know, we have, you know, this is our future in a way. I also can't get away from seeing the influences of Dune in all of our major sci-fi. I mean, everything from Star Wars to Harry Potter shares elements here maybe that's just because we go back to the joseph campbell idea of this like a hero and a call to action and all that sort of stuff uh which i imagine is true but i also think like when you look at like like, uh like star wars you know the sand planet like you have to think that like lucas was also taking some pages from Dune.
1: oh man like herbert when when star wars came out he was giving interviews like i'm trying very hard not to sue Yeah, (laughs) he was mad about Star Wars. And I think even Denis, like, he's got some quotes on that I really love. He's like, if you are going to try to do your own space opera today, I'm sorry, you are, quote, fucked by the huge elephant in the room that is Star Wars.
0: I mean, you have to be. I mean, it's like, look, he got there first. It became a giant hit. He rode on the back of a giant sandworm to uh, commercial success, George Lucas. But I also think, you know, look, when you look at these stories, I think at the, the root of it is like we like a story of... A no name, or a person who no one really believes in, who can overcome great difficulties and has these special powers. I mean, we know whether it's Harry Potter speaking um, in—I forget what they call it—but like to the snakes. That's what we're seeing here too. Like there are these things that just it's ingrained in us, right? Right. On some level, feels
1: related. Like who is the chosen one of these descendants and stuff? I, I remember thinking like that there might be this right hook in the Harry Potter books where it'd be like Neville Longbottom for some reason. I was convinced that. The whole Harry Potter series was like a like a like a detour uh-huh. in that he was going to emerge as like the secret hero, which is you know a thing here that we hear about, like in in the Bene Gesserit trying to like breed their heroes and who's it going to be? And I love the little bit where they're just, I mean, so much of the drama in here is that like Jessica was supposed to give birth to a girl, and the girl was supposed to mate with a boy, and the boy's the girl and the boy's son would be the actual next hero, but Jessica really loved her husband and so she decided to give him a son and then she screwed up the Bene Gesserit's plan but they when they talk about here how they measure you know time in eons essentially did you have to
2: go that far you chose to train him in the way in defiance of our rule he wields our power he had to be tested to the limits so much potential wasted in a male You were told to bear only daughters, but you in your pride thought you could produce the Kwisatz Haderach. Was I wrong? You're lucky he didn't die in that room. If he is the one, he has a long way to go. His sight is barely awakened, and now he goes into the fire. But our
1: plans are measured in centuries. We have other prospects if he fails his promise. I mean, that idea of just like, in a a way, it's almost like the story's kind of agreeing with what you're saying about the hero templates but fighting against it too these people are trying to create that hero to come out of nowhere and things just happen against their will that life still finds its own pass through and that maybe these heroes we're rooting for are very very bad for us
0: can we just take one quick detour too, and just talk about one other uh, like nod one other movie nod here that we haven't discussed because I, I think you're right. Like we're talking about these these grand stories and these things that we connect to, but there's one connection that when I saw Dune the first time, the thought that I had, and I couldn't get out of my head, was Beetlejuice. Oh yeah, with well, the sandworms, of course. Yes, I mean it's like to me, like it, like that sandworm was such. It was so. I mean, obviously you have movies like Tremors too, but it, like. Uh, There is something about that sandworm that, like, I'm like, oh, this is just Beetlejuice. Like, does is Beetlejuice Dune? Does Beetlejuice live on the Dune planet?
1: (laughs) I mean, he might. I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that this is like a paperback that was just passed around by all of these people who then wound up shaping our culture, right? Well, yes. I mean, it's like
0: like Frank Herbert tapped into our collective unconscious, right? If we were to look at sci-fi, could you make the argument that Dune and I mean, in Dune and Lord of the Rings really shape all of our sci-fi stories.
1: I mean, there's that fantastic documentary, you know, Hodorowski's Dune. And that documentary, by the way, if you haven't seen it, makes such a strong argument that, like, this failed Dune actually wound up changing cinematic history, Um on its own, even without it ever being made, that it's in making this failed dune that people like H.R. Geiger started to get more interested in, like, building sets, that it's because of this dune that we got Alien, and because of Alien, then we got everything else. And and it's just a fascinating little, like, kind of argument of, like, looking in the historical record. I'm always thinking of, like, you know, archaeologists, like, digging through cinema history and finding these little detours, I mean, have you ever had a project like that? Like, I have this running joke with my boyfriend about a script that he wrote that never got made where I call it, you know, Mortimer's X because, like, he put all of these ideas in there that he just wanted to do and now he, like, can draw from them and reshape them into other ideas. It was like this, I don't know, strong brew of just brainstorming. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think
0: that there are always things that you revisit when you create things. And what doesn't get made, you can recycle or find different ways in, you know, there's characters, there's themes I think we all wrestle with. And I think what we're talking about with a book like Dune, and the mistake that a lot of these big sci-fi films make is they try to capture everything that the book is in a film, but they're two different mediums. And you can't just do a direct adaptation. Um, You have to figure out what is important, what's not important, what you just described earlier about Denny moving things to different characters to make each film feel complete or without feeling overwhelming is really, really smart. And I think people risk or people don't risk making decisions like that because they don't want to upset the readers or people are like, well, you can't get rid of that character. But I think why this movie works so well and why it doesn't feel like a ripoff of Star Wars, why it doesn't feel like a ripoff of any of these other films that have been inspired by Dune but came out before this version of Dune is because it is, at the end of the day, a Denny Villeneuve film that is tackling this work that he loves. But it's not a Frank Herbert movie directed by Denny Villeneuve, if that makes sense.
1: It does. I mean, in a way, what you're describing about trying to live up to sources of information or, or inspiration is like a thing that I think that denny himself was wrestling with because like dune is the movie that he wanted to make from the time he was a teenager he was not a kid who grew up exactly like spielberg where spielberg was getting to run around with a camera and make his own things like denny grew up in kind of a really empty stretch of canada where he says you know the only two permanent buildings in his town were a church and a nuclear power plant and he just grew up kind of surrounded with religion and science and this idea of having faith in both of them. But he was obsessed with Dune. I think the scientific part of his brain was really obsessed with Dune. And so he started just drawing what his Dune would be, you know, doing like his own shot list, almost like a little very simple graphic novel and trying to figure out what his dream Dune would be. And then when he finally got to make Dune as an adult, he was looking back at the shooting guide that he made when he was 13. And it was... I don't know if it was stressing him out, but he said, you know, the dreams of a teenager are very totalitarian and he could not please his younger self. His younger self was even waving banners that were sort of impossible, he felt like, to do now. And so maybe just in knowing from the beginning, he had to like make different breaks, figure out different choices, figure out how to streamline things. You know, I I think that like the Dune adaptation that was done by Lynch really struggled to step away from... The literariness of the book, you know, that movie is just, oh my God, it is so loaded with like voiceover in narration, just constantly, you know, stuff like in the scene where Paul Atreides is hanging out. And then that tiny little metallic, like hunter seeker killer bug thing flies into the room. Yeah, The way that Lynch shot it is just so much voiceover of like, you know, Kyle channeling the book, Kyle McLaughlin, because he was playing Paul channeling the book by like narrating everything that's happening. Got to try to grab it. The Suspenser field will make it slippery on the bottom.
2: I must grip it tightly. Who is operating that thing? It has to be someone in the palace. I could shout for help, but it would kill whoever opened the door.
1: And then you compare that to the way like Denny did the same scene, and it's quiet. He like he feels like he comes in with the own creative confidence. To just have that be a scene about like us watching Paul watch the killer. And he doesn't have to dress it up. He just is like, I know this scene has quiet impact on its own.
0: It doesn't try to make these movements big, right? There's a lot of quietness, even that like, the rescue scene, which is so incredibly engaging, you know, when they when they are trying to lift this um this mining vehicle out of the sand and then the sandworms are coming. Like it is done almost in an anti-action film way. And maybe it's because we've been watching a bunch of Marvel movies. We've been watching these Mission Impossible films. Like, there is great fighting. There are great sequences in this. I, I think that everything becomes a lot more personal. Like, I think that, you know, when James Brolin grabs Paul Atreides, uh from the, the crawler, because he's, like, having this moment, like, it, it just, it's a different pace than we're normally used to. I think it actually gives you, like, oh, my God. Like, it actually gives you this, like, oof, that that could have been bad.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like the drama of that fight scene against Jamas isn't like, oh, look how cool they are and they're backflipping everywhere. You know, the way that you kind of get a glimpse of when he has that like future vision of himself as like this perfect Holy War soldier. Yeah. The drama of that fight is that, you know, A, we don't totally know if Timothy Chalamet's character is going to die. You know, everybody's acting like he's definitely going to die. But B... The idea that like he's fighting on the grounds of a culture that he doesn't yet understand. Like when he's putting the knife to the guy's neck thinking that'll just end it, thinking that he doesn't have to kill the guy, and not realizing that by holding the knife to Jamis's neck and not killing him, he's actually insulting him and everybody's losing their mind. Oh, oh. Oh, oh. Ah! There's no yielding under the Amtal rule. Only death is the test of it. Ah! Ah!
2: Ah! Ah!
1: Ah! 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 He's toying with him? No. Paul has never killed a man. Ah! That sense of like the drama is his own confusion at the rules you know like not only is he forced to do something he doesn't want to do which is kill somebody he's confused and he's also doubly confused because one thing i think is really interesting about this fight and about Jamis is that we've been seeing Jamis show up in his dreams before being a mentor to him you know in this future vision of his life on dune he like it's it's a vision of Jamis before he's even met Jamis Telling him when he's in like the helicopter, for example, that some that he needs to learn to move with the flow. That he has to learn how to kind of give in and let the natural forces happen as they're supposed to happen.
2: The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve. But a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow with it.
1: And so this whole film, I mean, that's like two hours into the film. You've been building up to this idea that he, because of his premonitions, is going to meet Jamis, and Jamis is going to be this great mentor to him, the way that we're seeing. And then instead he meets Jamis and he just immediately has to kill him. Jamis is like, I don't like this guy. He's not coming with us. I will kill him. And I think that's where you start to really get a sense of like the secondary trick that's happening in this Dune story, which is that his premonitions, it's not like in a lot of movies, it's like, ta-da, and here's the future, and you're going to see how it works. It's like, here's possibly what could happen, but it could also be a metaphor. You know, Jamas is saying he's going to teach him how to move with the desert, and it turns out he teaches him that by teaching him that in the desert, sometimes you just got to kill a guy, even the guy who's giving you advice that you have to just move with the desert. Like, he teaches him that same lesson, but in a way that is absolutely different than how he imagines it's going to go.
0: It just ends on this emotional beat. Like, you don't even know what you don't know yet. And maybe that is this arc, this, this arc that we are, like, following. But it's like, wow, that's like, it's subtle. But it's, I guess maybe it's the most impressive way to end the film.
1: Yeah, like you get that last line from Chani. Like she gets the first line and the last line where it almost feels maybe a little too on the nose, too much like, let us make Dune part two, come on. You know, which is, this is only the beginning. I mean, very prophetic, very much like you really need to see the rest of what this story is. But I think that's been kind of the struggle with Dune the whole way through is that this arc that Paul undergoes, then it's kind of adopted by Star Wars. And then we as a culture are like, Yeah, Paul Atreides is pretty cool when the whole idea of what Herbert wanted to say with these books was like, do not trust charismatic leaders. And I think, you know, and this was something that was really important to him. Like when he would give interviews about Dune, you know, he would always say to him, this was a book about never trusting your leaders.
0: Uh, Don't trust leaders to always be right. Uh, I I worked to create a, a leader in this book who would be really an attractive, charismatic person.
2: For all the good reasons, not for any bad reasons, mm-hmm. uh, then power comes to him, he makes decisions. Some of his decisions made for millions of people, millions upon millions of people, don't work out too well. In a general sense, not in a specific one about Leto and, and about yeah. planet Arrakis, but in a very general sense, do you make this, this statement because you're disenchanted? with the way others are viewing the future or preparing for the future?
0: Well, I think that, that our society was formed on a distrust for government. And uh, uh, we seem to have lost that distrust
2: of government. I, I kid around and I say that uh, my favorite president in recent years has been Richard Nixon because he taught us to distrust government.
1: And so the idea that like people could walk away from Dune thinking Paul Atreides is the hero really upset him you know and I think that that's kind of the fun thing to play with for audiences you know that's my favorite thing is when we wind up rooting for the wrong person or a movie plays with our kind of lazy decision just to empathize with the guy who looks like the hero because we're told he's the hero I like it when a movie challenges us to think deeper
2: Spread the word. When you get a fresh hot mccrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto trader.
0: What do you think about the, you know, the character that Oscar Isaac plays? Because I think he is this leader that is the charismatic, smart leader. You know, obviously he meets his demise, but, you know, I don't know. I thought there was something really interesting about that, that character, you know, because he is, he kind of presents exactly what we're talking about here.
1: Well, I think there's something so tragic about him because of everybody in the story that we've seen, he's the leader who seems like he makes the most sense. You know, he talks about how when he shows up to Arrakis, he doesn't want to be the one who like tries to murder all the Fremen and dominate them the way that like the Harkonnens did right before him. He really genuinely believes that he can make peace, like make an alliance. He is, I think, in a lot of ways, kind of like a really naive, old school liberal To be honest, you know, like we can make this work. He's like an idealist. He's like my parents when I was growing up. How they told me they solved all of the problems of the world, including racism and sexism, and it's all fine. Like that's who I think this guy is. And then, you know, it's the next generation after that, us and God, particularly Generation Z, who are just awesome, who are more like Paul Atreides, and they're like absolutely not. There's a lot more fighting left to be done. Like there's scenes where with like. Oscar Isaac and Timothy Chalamet, where it just sounds like a dad and his like Gen Z son. And he's like, what are you talking about? We got to stick up for the fremen. What's your problem? Blah, 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 blah. And like kind of calling his tad- dad to task when he thinks his dad is being too naive. Right? Like the scene that you have with yeah. um, with Javier Bardem, where you're like learning about the-, the spitting culture and all of that, which I just think is like so fun. Hold. But yeah, like this this idealist, it doesn't work out for him. You know, the the person who really thinks we can make peace, it doesn't work out for them. And it's like progressive, angry son who then takes things too far and is like willing to use violence. And that's, that's what changes things.
0: And, and I think that like, you know, this movie comes out in a year where we have just gone through an insurrection. You know, we've just gone through four years of uh, a leader who some people did not trust. And I think that they're probably on a subconscious level the same way that Frank Herbert's book affected all of these films. There's something also that's going through the community of uh, film watchers and, and even Academy members who could kind of give this genre film all these accolades because we identify with something here. Sometimes we have to act differently.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of funny and sad. I mean, I interviewed uh, Chalamet and Denny for the New York Times for Dune 2. And one of the things that kind of bummed me out because, you know, the New York Times can be really sensitive about expletives. They don't like to run a lot of curse words and yeah. Denny likes to curse a lot. So a lot of my favorite quotes from him did not make it through, which made me very sad. Uh, but one of them as we were saying like, what would Frank Herbert say if he was alive now to see the world that we were living in today? And uh, Villeneuve was like, he thought he would say, I fucking told you assholes. And if we couldn't run it, which made me so sad. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, let me ask you this though. Do you think this whole idea of like the oppressed Fremen who need to fight to get their own independence, would it just the restraint of making sure they pronounce it Fremen and not Freeman, right? Mm. It could just be pronounced Freeman. And I think if it was pronounced Freeman, you'd just be like, okay, we get it already. It's maybe too much even just spelled as close to Freeman as it is.
0: But I th- also think that sci-fi has a history of doing that, right? Like, this kind of, like, it sounds exactly, it almost is, it's not exactly, but, you know, it's like, it is pronounced Fremen, but how many people who you think read this book in 1956 read it as "Freeman"? <laughs> By the way, I just want to talk about one thing about the book which I think is fascinating. Do you know the original publisher of the book, Dune, was an automobile repair book publisher? Like, that's all the books that they made. <laughs> Then <laughs> one of their editors was like, uh, "This is good. We should release this. Let's get on this." And they did, and it like changed their whole course of their company.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm always knocked out by those stories because it really shows that so many of the things we think of as like juggernauts of culture barely happened. Yeah, right. I mean, I wonder how many juggernauts of culture actually didn't happen because the auto mechanic place published it, but then they didn't know how to publicize it, and so nobody read the book that would then become, you know the next cinematic Bible. Yeah. But I think there's also something to be said for this movie, I think, avoiding as much as it can falling into kind of that lockstep groupthink in the way that we shoot sci-fi movies like this. I mean, I read that uh, that Denis basically told all of his department heads, this was his quote, the internet is the mind killer so that they wouldn't base their production designs, costume designs on things they found online because he was like, everybody online is just using the same touchstones. And by saying, you know, don't use the internet, the internet is the mind killer, his production heads decided instead to like go to libraries and like dig through old books and to find inspiration for the costumes and for the designs that nobody else was using. And I think that's really neat. You know, I love the costumes on this. And like one of the rules they made was that they wouldn't use zippers or buttons because they figured in this type of futuristic world, zippers would be considered like archaic, ancient, maybe the way we like use lace up corsets or something like that. And so instead, they're holding the shirts together with magnets. Maybe that's why I was using thinking of magnets in my head. I mean, imagine being gigantic Jason Momoa and you're wearing a shirt that's held together with magnets. He apparently just kept accidentally flexing and then like busting the magnets, and the shirt would open and then you would have to close the magnets again.
0: I love that. I mean, by the way, he also is the person that looks like he's wearing the least magnetic stuff. It all kind of pops off. I love this performance by Jason Momoa. You know, not that we need to like dig in too much about it, but to me, that's the han solo that's the character we want i remember seeing that and going like holy shit this guy's got it like this guy is fun as hell but he also is totally in this world he doesn't feel out of this world you know i think at a certain point i felt a little bit like oh does zendaya feel out of this world i don't know you know and i'm curious to see how she pops into the second film
1: yeah i think in the second one you really get a better sense of the culture she's come from. Mm. You know, like, she really actually feels very rooted in the world of Arrakis in the second one. Like, she has, without giving anything away, she has sequences where she doesn't even talk, but because you understand how this culture works by then, she doesn't need to talk. You actually really understand how she's thinking. And I think she's really believable in it. You know, I mean, to me, this movie really is almost more like about being an anthropologist, going to a different culture than it is. I mean, or, or even the temptation to go to a different culture and treat it like your own. Because I think that's also another touchstone that this movie is using. You know, another movie that we did here on Unspooled is um, Colonel Kurtz, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Right? Doesn't the Baron, the way that they shoot Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron, doesn't he just look like Marlon Brando? You know, all those oh. shots of him in Apocalypse Now in the bath, in the water, covered in mud, rubbing his head.
0: There's something, I mean, I love that. You're totally right. This this kind of, uh, it felt to me like it was Marlon Brando mixed with Rod Steiger. Like it had this energy, this like, because there was an anger to him that, you know, Colonel Kurtz didn't necessarily have. You know, even Colonel Kurtz was like sending out all these, um, you know, was doing all this evil stuff. But there is something about the like this blood in the mouth kind of uh,
1: villain of him. I I've, I love yeah. this performance. Because this movie, I think, doesn't, go over the top with like, look at our super cool special effects, everything people can do. When it does do neat stuff, like the way the the Sardaukar, the kind of emperor's mercenary army, when they show up and they sort of float down from spaceships,
0: mm-hmm. it
1: looks so creepy. I, I love that, the slow drops. But then the only other major sci-fi effect I think they use is like when the Baron lifts up and floats across rooms and floats across tables. And there's this little tiny moment when he's like coming to kill Oscar Isaac's character where he floats up at the other end of that table. And it's just that beautiful Renaissance looking painting. Anyways, it looks like, I don't know, John the Baptist or, or Jesus dying like on the cross or something like that, where Oscar Isaac is naked and flounced across this chair. And then the emperor lifts up and he's floating across the long table at him. And I swear, it's the smallest thing, but one of his feet, I think it's like the right foot knocks against the table just a little bit, just a little bit the way that it would if you're kind of like a little clumsy flowing across the table. And I swear to God, that moment is what I love about Denis Villeneuve's Dune is he's like, here's a cool effect, but I'm going to do this little flaw in it. I'm not going to do it perfectly. I'm not going to be like, here's a super cool flying thing. And that little knocking of a foot against the table suddenly to me subconsciously makes it be like, oh, this is real. That's just how it would be. These are human beings who, who are, you know, I don't know if they're even human beings. These are actual tactile people, not CG. You know, they're bumping against the world and they're interacting with it. And it's not green screen and it's not perfect.
0: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, even that idea you're talking about, like Oscar Isaacs being spread out, you know, naked in that chair. Like even that, you know, there is a this constant reminder of humanity and, and stripping people of humanity. And this idea that like, the the world can overtake us you know how fragile we are as literally as human beings you know um we don't belong here from the sandworms to that like that we're constantly also just our bodies just don't fit in these worlds or in these clothes or in this thing it's like i think that this movie is always showing that frailty
1: yeah you have to wear all these things drink your own urine in order to survive in this planet because you're not made for it to work and even the way I think the camera functions here has that idea of like realism over CG just in the way it kind of almost sometimes feels like it's playing catch up a little bit. Like like Denny Villeneuve, he came into directing from making documentaries, like he made documentaries in the desert. And something about the way this camera is held, the way like sometimes you're watching a fight scene, but it's taken over by dust or there's something neat happening, but it's a little bit out of focus it makes you feel like that camera's actually there because you can't see everything perfectly. They're not framing the sandworms the way like you would if you were just like, look at my amazing art. I'm going to put it always right in the center. You're going to see the whole details. They're going to make you appreciate all the drool on the baleen. They're shooting it like you're almost trying to capture the sandworm because it's live and it's there ahead of you. You know, there's something deliberately sloppy about it. The sloppy might not even be the word, but like deliberately breathless in it mm. when you can't see everything you believe i think that it's all more real
0: i know we talked a lot about this film and there's so much that we haven't even touched and this is a this is probably the issue with these big films well, the way i feel about it and where we started like did the oscars get it wrong you know is this movie a film that should have gotten all of its flowers and there's a part of me that says no because to your own you know admission and mind too. It's not fully a movie. It is a part of a movie. It is the promise. It's the potential. Like we don't even know what's on the other side of that wall. I mean, unfortunately, you can't slam movies together and say that that, you know, give this film an award now as part one and part two. You know, we talked about that as far as like, oh, should we put all the Star Wars together on our AFI list or our API list? And you know, there's a want to do that. And it it's a, it actually I think is you know, this issue that might even hurt Dune 2, which is like, well, it's not really a full movie. It's like, oh, it's a bummer because it is probably, as the pieces connect, this beautiful, fully realized piece. But will we ever recognize that when we feel like, well, it's not the full thing? You know, it's not six hours, so we can't appreciate it. And if it was six hours, we wouldn't appreciate it. We're kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation.
1: I mean, I think that's true. What's frustrating for me is... I mean, I do feel like CODA should not have won Best Picture. I mean, I hope that CODA does do good things in, like, expanding the world of acting to people who, you know, use ASL. I mean, we did an Oscar episode that week, and I just remember being kind of frustrated and blah about everything that was nominated. I mean, when I look at the Best Picture list, I don't even know who else I would have wanted to win. Like, do now, I think I want to win, maybe just by default, because I look at everything else and I hated Nightmare Alley. Power of the Dog was fine. Did not like West Side Story. Licorice Pizza was okay, but it's not my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson. King Richard, Drive My Car, Don't Look Up, Belfast. I mean, what were we doing? Why are these our Oscar nominations?
0: I think that there was a time, this era, this moment, where we were looking for something that made us feel good. There's something about the Oscars. I don't think you should put everything on it um, because truly give it five years and where will we be at? And that, that, that to me is, I think the great equalizer.
1: I mean, that's fair. Like the way that I'm feeling right now with Dune part two, feeling fresh and me also feeling a little bit of remorse that I didn't appreciate Doom part one more when I saw it. And also being this early in the year where I don't even know what else is going to come out. I'm like, I hope Doom two is a strong contender. I hope we take it seriously, even though it is a genre sci-fi space epic as an actual Oscar film, because I really think it just, it is such a beautiful and efficient storytelling wonder box. I don't know. I think it tells this story in a way that takes a strong, confident, creative hand. And I think, like, Denny Villeneuve and his co-writers did great work getting this across and telling it visually, telling it emotionally, figuring out how to take a story that's so dense with lore and then make it about the humans who live in it, not about capturing, like, the arcane verbiage but like the people the people in this world i think that's just hard to do honestly and i don't think people get it right that often i feel very strongly that if denny villeneuve does not get best adapted screenplay whatever does has to be incredibly kick-ass more kick-ass than i can imagine right now
0: i know uh i mean i i can't wait and he says he's done right this is it he's done after Well,
1: there's a chance they might make dune messiah but that would be like a while okay Doom Messiah is like the second book, and it's the one where it becomes way more clear that Paul Atreides is not the hero. Like, it starts with Paul Atreides, um, 12 years later because of his time as ruler. Well,
0: don't don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. 61 billion people have died. <laughs> <I> oh, <don't> no. <know. laughs>
1: that was another curse that got cut out. When I brought that up uh, with with uh, Villeneuve and Chalamet, after 61 billion people, Villeneuve just like turned to Chalamet and called him an asshole, and they changed it to jerk. Boo. Oh, come on, New York Times. <laughs> jerk with brackets. So, you know, he didn't actually say jerk. I love it. Uh, all right, so Amy, you know, I know we've spent
0: a lot of time talking about all of this great stuff. And I think that what we can't deny is that Dune has had an influence on sci-fi as we've known it. And especially people who grew up, uh, you know, as readers of Dune, but also as viewers of Star Wars. And, you know, Star Wars is this, this kind of, thing hanging over our head it's a similar story we talked about it a little bit here today but i thought it'd be fun to kick it back to our star wars episode
1: i was thinking about this idea of like this feedback loop of nostalgia that star wars represents you know that you have george lucas who wanted to make a movie to honor flash gordon and Mm -hmm. all the serials that he loved when he was a kid couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon because they wanted Fellini to make a Flash Gordon movie. So uh, I was would have like, loved to
0: have seen that. Yeah, so
1: he's like, you know, I'll just make my own version of this kind of a story. So right. he does a film that is an homage to an older type of cinema, but then because of the film he does, we have only ever grown up in a world that's an homage to this film. Everything that's like nostalgic from this film. So we've- I mean, I'd you look at some of our like best I'm...
0: filmmakers who I think are of the now, the filmmakers of now, that are directly influenced by them. And whether or not they're making films that are- like them, but we could, you know, or they're making films just that this is in their DNA. I mean, look at Jon Favreau, who, you know, is behind Iron Man, but now is doing The Mandalorian, which it's a director who grew up loving Star Wars, getting to play in that sandbox. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, want to kind of do that and forge their own path. It, it's basically the toys that we had as a kid. And you're seeing directors do that, I think in a, in the Marvel world a little bit. But um, I think The Mandalorian is kind of this really interesting um, merger of a, of a filmmaker who grew up you know, roughly in our age group who's g- now getting to make the thing that he always wanted to make. He gets to make the backyard playing of Star Wars figures into an actual TV show.
1: That's fair, but in a way, I feel sorry for him that he doesn't get to have the challenge that Lucas had, which is just mm. make your own thing.
0: So uh, definitely check out that Star Wars episode to hear Amy and I kind of dive in a little bit more. And now, Amy, it's time for us to go even more current than 2021. We're going to go to 2024 because next week we are talking about the Oscars. That's right. What we liked, what we didn't like, what we think will win, what we don't think will win. Will there be a bet? Probably. Will you lose? Maybe. Maybe we'll break that streak. We don't know.
1: <laughs> I was thinking I want to have a new bet. Let me, let me see what you think about this. You can pick your normal ballot. See how well you do. I might try to do a ballot where maybe I just try to get everything wrong. And if I, it, like almost a double or nothing, if I get every single one wrong, I win.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I like that. I like that. Okay, Because <laughs>
1: I'll never beat you. I've never beat you so far. I if know. We're but just, if we're going head to head in the calculated sense. Why don't
0: we both compete to get everyone wrong? Really? I like You'd that. You'd be willing to do that? Yes. Everyone wrong. Because I okay. think it's an interesting, then it puts us on the same playing field.
1: Okay, let's do it. All right. This will help because I can only ever vote my conscience anyways. So great.
0: Let's get them all wrong. You and I next <laughs> week. All right. I can't wait to see uh, people wearing their Arc of Schwing shirt from tpublic.com that we created, uh, especially after our Wayne's World episode. It's ridiculous. And you can make it into a sticker or anything uh, you want, even a hoodie. Just go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. My book is available to pre-order right now. Just go to my website or even uh, you could do it right through the unspooled website as well. Uh, you don't have to pre-order it there, but there's plenty of links there to order it from whatever bookstore you'd like. You know, Amy, before we wrap up today's show, um, there is something different going on behind the scenes. This is our first episode without our producer, Josh Richmond, who has been here at Unspooled from the very beginning, a champion of the show, this idea. Uh, So many creative things have come from the mind of Josh Richmond. And this is our first show without him. And I honestly, I'm very sad to see him go.
1: Yeah, Josh has always been Earwolf to me. I mean, he's been Wolf Pop to me. Remember previous Wolf Pop, our incarnation? He was my first producer back then when I was with um, the Canon. I have never done podcasting without Josh Richmond by my side, uh, going back a decade. like He is always been, I guess, in the literal metaphor of what a podcast producer is. He's been my sounding board. Um, He knows more about movies than almost anybody I know. I always would joke that like him and our our former engineer, Devin, they should be hosting their own movie podcast and just like spitting names and facts and, and love about each other. He and I disagreed on so many movies and I loved disagreeing with him. And he's just a brilliant mind, brilliant guy. His career in audio goes all the way back to, you know, being on like radio shows that were completely lunatic and fun. And he has my favorite quality in any person ever, which is he's curious. Like, he's just down. I invited him to see Pitbull with me, and he was like, yeah, why not? I love that and upset
0: that I didn't get that invite. Um, You know, I will say that, you know, Josh has been behind so many great film shows here. I can't wait to see what he does. I know that he's doing a bunch of different projects. Uh, You know, I've been a big fan of the Richmond Anthology, which is this gigantic piece of work that he did that kind of Pulled together all these different songs from different periods. You could find that online.
1: Yeah, it is like the history of all music. Like, all music. And if that sounds ambitious, it's because, like, the Spotify playlist is over 24 hours. And it starts with John Cage 433. I mean, it is a ridiculous achievement.
0: We, you know, uh, and even though he's not with the show anymore... Keep tabs on Josh because he's always up to something really fascinating. I mean, whether it's working with us, Quentin Tarantino, or really at the inception of Earwolf. Like back in the day, he has worked with great people and will continue to work with great people and is such a fantastic collaborator and creator himself. And as a matter of fact, Amy, tell him what he's up to right now.
1: Yeah, he just announced that he is making his first video game which is just so amazing. I didn't even know he had that side to him. He is a, he is a man of many facets. Uh, yeah, it's called Doomsday, and he just started the kick track to get it off the ground. I think he's actually made it. It's just like, ta-da! It's a, he's describing it as a maniacal card game for PC and Mac. And if it has his brain, I know that it's maniacal. And yeah, like, like you were saying, he too has just been such a heart and soul of Earwolf. He's a guy who was so devoted to Earwolf that he lived in an apartment two blocks behind Earwolf.
0: Well, we just wanted to say thank you to Josh for all the years, all the time, all the debate that we have had on the show and the movies that we pick and the the format of the show really goes to Josh. We are going to be in capable hands uh, in the interim as Cody Fisher is jumping in alongside our uh, regular producer, Jess Cisneros. You know, Jess. So we are still having a lot of the great team here, but we just would be remiss if we didn't tip our hats to our original team which is now completely gone it's just you and me amy that's it uh we're the only ones left don't <laughs> leave me paul we, this is <laughs> it <laughs> do not um leave but uh so josh good luck definitely keep tabs on him on instagram he is radio tfb keep your eyes on him like you said he's doing cool stuff and he will continue to do cool stuff and amy now we go into the unknown and what better unknown than the academy awards a big thank you to our producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapello, and our MVP... Molly Reynolds, our theme song is by Michael Cassidy and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg/paulshear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com/unspooled and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.
2: spread the word. When you get a fresh hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. auto trader.